Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, let's go out and shred with SST 148, The Power of Expression LP by Blast. We've had the band Blast on the show a couple of times. We've done the It's In My Blood LP and the School's Out 7-inch, but this is their first LP. And, uh, you know, Brent, this is one of those records where I kind of wish we had done it in chronological order instead of the SST catalog order because uh, I really really prefer this record to it's in my blood and oh, i was nice. just oh i was just digging it this week yeah. um and even better we've got a special guest yeah clifford dinsmore's on the show yeah and it's a great interview he's a he's a swell guy really happy to have him on yeah there's some great stories too man like about the hardcore scene back then i was i was just digging it yeah yeah it's a good one so before we get into some shredding with blast who wants to do some spiels, you or I? Spiel away, man. All right, all right. Um, a quick Record Store Day spiel, just to note that uh, there is another Mike Watt <laughs> release coming out the next Record Store Day that I just saw. Another one with Larry Mullins, another Stooges tribute. This one is 1970 Parts 1 and 2 mm. on Org Records. And I think... When we were talking about the last Record Store Day drop, I neglected to mention, well, you pointed out I missed the Meat Puppets release on the SS Tree. And the last Record Store Day drop, too, that was the one when the Bob Mould Circle of Friends double LP came out as well. Forgot to mention that one. Right. Also, though, on the on the tree and also Mike Watt related Brent, uh, you actually hipped me to this, but did you see that band Organs has released that new Mike Watt EP? Yeah, they actually just emailed me to let me know that, that they did. I haven't had a chance to check it out, though. Have you? Oh, yeah. There's two songs on it, 3.5 and 5.3, and it's 100 CDs, like a extra limited edition CD run of this it sounds cool i mean they they put out that one disc that we checked out a while back it's like a half an hour song yeah and uh it's pretty intense and wild and this stuff with uh watt doesn't disappoint either so very cool should check that out ss tree mike watt and brent i want to uh, mention a couple of documentaries before i turn it over to you okay oh cool so the first documentary I want to mention, I sent you the the link to this, Somewhere to Go, the Victoria, B.C. punk documentary is finally out, and it's free on YouTube, man, and it's awesome. Yeah, so you sent me the link. I clicked on it to see what it was that you had sent me and went, wow, I got to come back to this, and then completely forgot that you had sent it to me until just now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should check it out. If, I will. Uh, if, any, if, if anyone out there is digging the obscure Canadian punk spiels that we lay on you now and then, um, and especially stuff about No Means No or Pigment Vehicle or Brandt, like even The Neos or, I bet dare you, I say, Shovelhead. I bet you Dayglow Abortions are on it. Dayglow, uh, Shovelhead. Red Tide, um, probably. Yes, Red Tide. Oh, yeah, they definitely get some spotlight uh, Red Tide, Show Business Giants, nice. The Vinaigrettes, Scott Henderson. It's like way up my alley, um, and it's very cool. 
somewhere to go. And, and it really, you know, that Victoria punk scene was really unique, heavily tied of course, to the Vancouver scene, but still isolated because it's on an actual Island and, but also has ties to the West coast punk scene. And, you know, like West coast punk, um, we've got a West coast punk band on this episode. So I thought I would mention that. And then, uh, the second documentary I wanted to mention that uh, it's it's not out yet, but I just saw the trailer. They've got like a Kickstarter thing going, but it looks cool to me. And I thought you might uh, like to check this out. It's called Sound of Surf. It's a rockumentary film, the story of surf guitar and the transformation of rock and roll music. Now, you and I used to play in an instrumental band that had some surfy moments. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was a big fan of really, I guess, purist surf, surf music. Um, you got a bit fuzzier than me. I guess it's, I think it's fair to say for sure on this documentary. The one thing that really stood out for me in the trailer is Jello Biafra's in the trailer. Mm-hmm. And he, he is identified in the trailer Um, And some of the write-ups as a rabid record collector, of course, and of surf music. And it notes that many of Jello Biafra's compositions were inspired by surf music classics. And no surprise there. Obviously, the Dead Kennedys music, very surf, very spy surf guitar sounding stuff that East Bay Ray would lay down. And it it is uh, held out a bit as a documentary that connects the dots between surf and punk. And there's a lot of, especially West Coast punk that has kind of that 60s surf beat in the music, like The Descendants, like The Last, like All, you know, like Chemical People. There's a ton of uh, punk bands that really... Lawndale. Lawndale. <laughs> yeah, don't forget about Lawndale. But uh, this looked like a cool documentary that wasn't just going to be another documentary on dick dale this looked like it would um have some very cool history and show like the full lineage from its beginning and the surf culture and then up into some of the punk music so i thought uh, you'd be interested in that one hey i watched a documentary today actually which one i wish i would have remembered about the victoria one because i would have watched that instead because i've already seen the one that i watched which is dave markey's awesome my career as a jerk oh yeah well, it must be good if you watched it again. Xander. <laughs> Come down to San Francisco and bring your Spanish guitar. Bring your Spanish guitar, Xander. <laughs> Great Circle Jerks documentary, for sure. Yeah. What do you, what kind of spiels do you have for the people this week, Brent? I've got uh, just one, Ryan. It's the... Your, your PQRSTUVWXYZ <laughs> section of your phone? That, pretty much, yeah. It's the remainder of the R section as I get this shit off my phone, and some, and I'm dipping into the S, in, into the S's. Okay. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, I know they're all starting to blend together here, but I got to get this stuff off my phone, Ryan. So, and and what you're replacing it with new stuff? Okay, is that right? Yeah, not in the same quantities, but you know, probably by this time next year, I'll have to repeat this process because my phone will have like less than one gig of space left on it. So. You you listen to it. You don't want it on your phone anymore, but you're also recommending it. Yes, that's well. Some I'm recommending. Some I'm just 
it's just something I listen to. Okay. It seems like a yeah. bit, it still seems like a bit of a mixed message here on the R section, but lay it on me. <laughs> okay. Rhino Bucket. LA band formed in 89, broke up in 96, came back in 2001, split up, sounds like for good, in 2008. And then it got ugly as the one I did, their comeback record from 2006. All their records are great. They didn't, they never did a bad one. Definite Bon Scott era ACDC influence, but they write great songs. Huh. Hey, speaking of ACDC, are you pumped for that new record or what? Yeah, power up, man. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty pumped, actually. Yeah, me too. Okay, Ryan, Rush, Permanent Waves. I bought the two CD 40th anniversary set oh, yeah. that came out about a month ago. Great live set from 1980 on there. Killer version of Xanadu from the London show. Round Eye, Culture Shock Treatment. Nice. The new one just came out 2020. Kind of remind me a little bit of Victim's Family at times. Really cool band. Would have been right at home at Alternative Ten- on Alternative Tentacles, actually. Yep. The Ridiculous Trio. The album's called Plays the Stooges, also 2020 on Modern Harmonic. I don't know anything about them. It's drums, trombone, and tuba, and it's all jazz instrumental versions of Stooges songs. Oh, dude. Um, where did I just hear about that? I think it was on... It might have been on the Watt from Pedro show when he was when he had uh, Ian MacKay on. They were talking about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't listened to that yet. It's a, it's interesting. Okay, here's one that's on the tree. I actually got this from you. It's the Rad Waste End Times mixtape. Oh yeah, Happy Squid Records. It's on the tree because John Talley Jones from Trotsky Ice Pick was in Rad Waste. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but this was recorded in the 80s, but just released last year. Yeah, essentially, uh, give or take a year. But it was their, you know, long lost or, you know, unreleased album. But man, I I still put that on like once a month or so. It's just great gang of four art post-punk. I love it. It's kind of funky, hey? Oh, yeah, funky. Yeah. Okay, Raw Zebra, R-A-E-Z-E-B-R-A-E, Raw Zebra. Cheap Happiness or Lofty Suffering. Uh, Several uh, ladies in the band, Deborah Patino on vocals. She has a spoken word album on New Alliance Records. Ingrid Baumgart on guitar, who was in Bulimia Banquet. Katie Child on bass. Janet Housden from Red Cross and the Love Dolls Band. Kind of arty punk rock. Some cool songs. I feel like we've spoken about them before on the show, too. Yeah, I've brought them up, for sure. And maybe it was Cooked Zebra. Or was it Raw Zebra? No. Raw Zebra? It was Raw Zebra. Okay, got it. One of our guests actually talked about them, because I didn't know how to pronounce the band name until they said it. (laughs) 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 Okay, Realize, Machine Violence. This is... Uh, a new record just came out on Relapse. Industrial metal, more in the Godflesh vein than, say, Ministry or something like that. It's really good if you're into that stuff. Here's one that's on the tree, Ryan. The Ringling Sisters, 60 Watt Reality. Came out in 1990 on AM Records. It's a real who's who of women from the LA punk scene. Deborah Patino again, who I just mentioned from Raw Zebra. Annette Zelin- Zelinskis. Uh, from the Love Dolls movie, but also in Blood on the Saddle, which would put this on the tree. Yep. Yes, this tree. 
Jonette Napolitino, uh, best known as vocalist for Concrete Blonde. She's not on this record, actually, but she was in the band. Pleasant Gaiman, uh, Screaming Sirens, also has a spoken word on album on New Alliance. Uh, Debbie Schaefer, Texacala Jones was in the band at one point. It's a really cool album. There's some spoken word stuff on there, some standard rock songs with really great lyrics. Gary Eaton is the guitar guitarist and I think kind of the arranger. I'm not really too sure about that, though. But that's cool, worth checking out. Speaking of L.A. women and rock, Sylvia Giancosa was certainly getting some love lately with our uh, interview, hey? Like, people were giving her mad oh, yeah. props. Yeah, everybody loves Sylvia Giancosa, man. Yeah, wow. That was awesome. Ryan, I did Ron Emery's solo record, Walk That Walk, which came out in 2010. He's, of course, the guitar player from TSOL. He has this one solo record with a bunch of guests on it. Fletcher from Pennywise, Dexter Holland's on it, Mike Roach from TSOL, Mike Ness is on it, Tim Armstrong. Uh, it's a nice eclectic album, some rockers, some ballads. It's cool. Here's one I recommended, I think, last year to, to you, Ryan. It was in, in my, might have been my top 10, maybe just my honorable mentions. I don't remember. It's the Red Kite self-titled record. Uh, it's got the guitarist from Bushman's Revenge. And a bunch of insane musicians from that Norwegian jazz rock fusion scene. Yeah, it, yeah. It's killer. I did the Racer X Street Lethal record. Definitely not a recommend for you. That's some killer power metal from 1986 with Paul Gilbert just melting the fretboard. <laughs> and then I did the Romans record, You Only Live Once, 1983 Enigma Records. That's members of Monitor, Human Hands, Bee People, Green on Red. Drummer Keith Mitchell plays on it, and he was he played drums on the Opal Happy Nightmare Baby. So technically, that's this one's on the SS Tree. Yeah, man, it's pretty arty and surfy. It's cool. Okay, dipping into the S's, Ryan. I did the brand new one from Shabaka and the Ancestors. We are sent here by history. Uh, on the reactivated Impulse label. Their second record really builds on the first one. Super eclectic world music sounds built on a great jazz foundation. From Johannesburg, Shabaka Hutchings is the band leader. He plays tenor sax. It's pretty awesome. Ryan, the band Shiv, Flayed and Ashamed is the record. Do you know Shiv? I don't. Okay, you better check that one out. 1996, Thirsty Ear, Noise Rock from New Haven, Connecticut. Just the one full-length record and some singles. Complex songs and time signatures, uh, but some really great lyrics and super catchy, too. I'm in. Okay, here's a couple that you're going to hear about from Clifford Dinsmore in about 5-10 minutes when we get to the interview. Seized Up. Brace Yourself. Clifford's new band. A uh, bit of a super group. We talk about it in the interview. It's a great record. Uh, but even cooler for me, and probably Ryan, of all the... Sp- bands that I've discovered as a result of doing this podcast, whether it's, you know, stuff you've recommended or uh, stuff that's on the SS tree that I checked out or whatever. Uh, this is a top five discovery for me uh, Whoa. that I've that I've made as a result of doing this podcast. And that's Clifford's band Space Boy, who I had not heard prior to recording this interview with him, which I did two or three weeks ago. So I've been obsessed with this band Space Boy that he mentions in the interview ever since. Their 1998 debut, Getting Warm on the Trail of Heat, is heavy, riffy, progressive, jazzy, 
It checks all the right boxes for me. I need more Space Boy. They have at least one more record, an EP, and a bunch of singles. Really awesome. Space Boy. That's a heavy recommend. Do yeah, you mean it? My, yeah, Clifford's the vocalist in a man. It's kind of my new obsession. Right on. Yep. Okay, and then I'm calling this the Ryan section of the <laughs> Get This Shit Off My Phone. In the letter S. In the letter S. Oh, I did geez. this I did this French band called Slift. Yes. And I believe their record's called Yaman. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think it's Uman. Oh. Came out this year. It's some psychedelic rock. That's pretty good. That's a recommend from you. Yes, it's good. An even better recommend from you though is the Salvation record, Year of the Fly. Yeah, told you. Heavy, good songs, loved it. An old, old recommend from you is Split Red, Serious Heft. This is good stuff. Uh, the label New Atlantis has some really cool stuff on it too. Kind of a Melvin's vibe almost to Split Red. Some Slayer in the lead guitar playing. This is one I think you recommended. I think this is how it ended up on my phone. The band's called Shark? Question mark? Shark? Shark? Yeah. Question mark? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pronounced Shark? Yeah. Savior from 2013. It's okay. Kind of has that modern garage rock sound, which, to be honest, gets old fast for me. Whoa. Yeah. Sweet Pea. Chicks Hate Wes. 1996. Nice. Always reliable trance syndicate records. I think they just have this one record. From Austin, of course. They're tied to all these bands we've been talking about lately, too. Switch Hitter, Red X, Red M, Fawcett. Very noisy, not in the Jesus Lizard vein, but more in the Sonic Youth noisy way. Like, lots of feedback and distortion, but really good. I like that a lot, Sweet Pea. Yeah, it's good. And then finally, Ryan, is one that I got from you. You you scored me a copy of this, and it's the Saccharin Trust Live at Save Music in Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Recorded May of 2016. Proceeds, of course, to Saccharin Trust bassist Chris Stein, or his family, who unfortunately passed away on December 1st, 2018, after battling cancer. It's a great set, and I thought it would be a good time to throw it on uh, to get pumped up for our Past Lives episode, which we're doing next week. Yeah. That's it. Very good. I'm so glad you're taking that off your phone and making room for more recommends from me. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to shred? Yeah, let's get into this Blast record, man. History lesson, part one. Okay, man, like I said, we have uh, covered a couple of Blast releases before, but uh, this one by far is my favorite so far. Where, where, does it, where does it stack up for you? Like, is it on par with It's In My Blood, better or worse? Uh, I, I like them both, man. I don't have a favorite of the two. They're both mm. really great. Yeah. I didn't like like this one way, way better or anything. I don't know. I must have been just in the mood for it this week. You know, the uh, the Take the Manic Ride was kind of my blast record forever. And, you know, it wasn't really easy to find blast records way back when, where, where I grew up anyways. And so that's the only one I ever had forever. Yeah. And uh, You, you kind of have to be in the mood for blast. They're one of those bands. Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty intense music. 
Oh, yeah. Yep. I, get, I have a little recap here, Ryan. Okay. Okay, so as you mentioned, we've done Blast previously, uh, but the order of the episodes is a bit screwy because this is this album was a reissue when it came out on SST. So for episode 106, it's In My Blood, which is their second record. Uh, that's the one where we spoke to bassist Dave Cooper, so you should go back and listen to that if you haven't. And then on episode 124, we did the Schools Out 7-inch. So this is their first album. Uh, it's been released a number of times. First in 1986 on Wishing Well Records in association with Green World Records. That came out on LP and cassette. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Wishing Well Records, Ryan? Wishing Well Records was a short-lived subsidiary of Giant Records, which put out a lot of great releases by bands that we all like, like uh, Government Issue, Seven Seconds, Dag Nasty, tons of bands. Uh, even a Nicky Sudden LP, I believe, was put out on Giant Records, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, Wishing Well Records, though, was really ran by Pat Dubar and Pat Longry from the band Uniform Choice. Uniform Choice, of course, uh, a very influential Southern California hardcore band and straight-edge hardcore band. Wishing Well Records, though, put out a number of really influential records back then, like Youth of Today's Break Down the Walls, Uniform Choice's Screaming for Change record, the Instead record, Bonds of Friendship, which I think you mentioned when you were getting the letter I off your phone, in fact, Brant. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the Unity EP, UR1. But there's those are kind of like, I, I would say, the most famous Wishing Well Records releases. But there are some other great bands on Wishing Well, like 76% Uncertain, Grave Goods, with Colin Sears from Dagnasty, um, their their full length called "New Face Revealed" is not actually on Wishing Well, which but it's great uh, late '80s melodic hardcore, kind of in the vein of that Dagnasty record Field Day. Also, the very first Shades Apart record, which uh, is a band that kind you know was on Revelation and eventually got signed to a major but that first shades apart record great melodic hardcore and uh, wishing well was also going to put out another late 80s early 90s kind of melodic hardcore record by a band called free will which i really like but mm -hmm. that one was actually uh, it ended up being put out on lost and found records and then the guy mike's own label new age records but wishing well records very influential straight edge hardcore and i mean those straight edge hardcore bands like youth of today uniform choice instead unity probably what some would call maybe you know the more pious straight edge that really took off from where minor threat left but wishing well really made a lot of sense though if you think of those bands for having this blast record released on there too um yeah. really really fits in there and i mean some of the riffs on this record, too, uh, on this Blast record, I could hear those on a Uniform Choice or Youth of Today record if they had, you know, a different rhythm section, different vocalist. So there was definitely a vibe and a scene around that Wishing Well Records, and they fit in. Okay. So 
Also in 1986, this came out on Roadrunner Records in Netherlands, which is more of a metal label. According to Discogs, this was first also reissued or re-released by SST in 1986. So the year it came out, the same year it came out on Wishing Well. Uh, And again in 1987 on cassette and LP. And then again on SST on CD in 1990. And you'll hear more about how all this happened in our interview with Clifford. Uh, It was also reissued in 2014 as The Expression of Power by the label Southern Lord. The CD version of that contains their third attempt at recording the album, which is the same as the SST LP. And the second attempt, which is an alternate recording of the album from a different studio, And then the triple LP version of that Southern Lord reissue contains an additional session, which is the first recording, also known as the demo. Again, this is all discussed by Clifford in the interview. Uh, The band on these recordings is Clifford Dinsmore on vocals, or on the LP he's listed as words. Mike Neider on guitar. Steve Stevenson on guitar, or on the LP he's credited as remainder. I'm not sure what that means. Steve would leave the band shortly after this record came out, uh, and then Bill Torgerson on drums and Dave Cooper on bass. It was recorded September-October 1985 at Fane Production Studio, Santa Cruz, California, engineered by Vince Sanchez. Yeah, he did a real good job, as Clifford Clifford mentions too. Like, this record sounds really great for when it was produced. Like, there's a lot of hardcore records around this time that don't sound this good yeah no it sounds great should we throw it over to clifford yeah man all right we're joined on the podcast today by clifford dinsmore clifford thanks for being on the show you're welcome thanks for having me all right i'm wondering if you can take me back to the early days in santa cruz that's is that where you grew up as well i know that's where the band was from are you from santa cruz yeah, yeah, basically, um, like, the way it all happened is, is Dave Cooper, the bass player, he was from, like, sort of half here, half Meadow Vista, Sierra Foothills, you know, Glass Valley area, where the rest of the guys were from. And um, the way that I met those guys is, is through old punk rock shows, you know, like like 1980, you know, like, probably seems like I probably had to have met them in about 80, maybe 79. Just got to know them through a mutual friend, Keith Meeks, who is a, a skater that had the, the slasher model in Santa Cruz. Right. And uh, that's how I ended up getting involved with those guys. And, um, you know, they used to come down and, you know, they, they eventually all moved to Santa Cruz. And then that's when I got in tight with them. And then there was the band that eventually became MAD and uh, there was this song, the song Holocaust that they had the music for. They were playing at a, a mutual friend's house and I kept, you know, hearing that song over and over and over. And then I ended up with a tape of it and I just go here, you know, I had no intention of singing right. or doing anything like that in a band. And then I just handed them the, the lyrics that I wrote and I was kind of like, well, I wrote these words you know and they're like well why don't you sing it so i sang it and then and then that's how mad formed which was pre-blast which is basically all the members except for mike who was always going to join mad and then um 
he eventually came back down and, you know, moved here. And, and then that's when it turned into blast. And I was kind of, I'd like turned into a preppy and like wanted to go away for a college to college for like a couple, you know, like <laughs> you did a few months or something like going through some like delusional phase. I'm like, I got to get out of punk. I need to do something <laughs> constructive, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like uh, the Santa Cruz that, that they basically came into was just, you know, just, it, it was, it, it was the real Santa Cruz, you know, it was like the 80 Santa Cruz was just, you know, so much different than it is now. Now it's just a yuppified shithole. I mean, it still has the, the cool aesthetic, but it's just been so hideously gentrified and it's so grossly overcrowded at this point that it's kind of just like, it's almost not even worth being here, but Back then, I mean, it was truly bitching. It was a great place. I mean, it was like, you know, local surf town. It was kind of, had sort of a hippiest reputation, but then you had the surfers and the skaters that kind of had a more aggressive quality that kind of were into the punk, you know, and all that. And and it was actually, you know, there was a lot of people that were, that were really, really into the music here. There just wasn't a lot of venues to play at. Right which was always the big issue back then. But, but yeah, back in that day, I mean, it was just, you know, it was localized. You basically were just okay if you just showed respect. Right. And if you didn't, then, you you know, get kind of run out of town and just <laughs> the surf spots, whatever, the shows, you know. It was just, like, 80s California was kind of a phenomenon itself, you know. Yeah. So who were some of the local bands that were playing both pre-MAD and when you guys started playing? Who were the other kind of locals? Uh, well, there was like a, a rock band that was that was really cool. Like when I was younger, like my mom worked for the guitar player's dad, who was a famous astronomer. Like they were called Snail. Mm-hmm. And they were around and they kind of, you know, made it pretty far out of Santa Cruz. It's always been known as kind of a weird vortex center for bands, you know, to, get out of and and then there was a great band called the humans hmm. that were kind of you know border like kind of when, when new wave was kind of crossing over into punk but they were just incredible they were a great band that i used to see a lot in high school and then there was a, a, a bunch of kind of unknown you know punk bands that were springing up at the time mostly kind of older like art punk kind of people like the schematics jj 180 Um, like the humans were kind of at the forefront of it and then like the drivers and, Hmm. um, the scapegoats and just a bunch of, you know, bands that were kind of the the older crew. Right. And then like when around the time MAD was forming, like, uh, like my friend Steve that I'm in a band now called dusted angel with, like he made a band with his cousin, Mike, you know, and a few people and they were called like riot or something. And, and it just started like, as MAD happened, you know, there was the young alcoholics or was like many Santa Cruz punk scenes started kind of happening. So where, what was the venue? Was there like a central location for the, for the shows? Actually there was, yeah, this guy, Henry Hample, who was in the band, the scapegoats, he ran the Santa Cruz art center which was this tiny little like theater place. And, and he started having shows there like DOA played there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, uh, it was like a really cool place, like really, 
really cool place, and he's kind of responsible for kind of giving the youthful bands a place to play. Then there was just kind of random places, like there was a place called Shelley's 2, where that was the actual, that was that was the, where I met Black Flag. I think I was 16. That had to be like probably 78 or something. Wow. And um, they played with DOA at this place called Shelley's, and that was the first time I saw them. And Daz had just joined the band, you know, like he'd only been singing for a little while. And, right. And that's where I met Chuck, and and that place was cool. And then there was kind of these warehouse places that people would rent and do random shows. But the real, like, turnaround came at the very beginning of Blast when this guy, Richie Walker, who was in, you know, some of the local bands and stuff, he opened up a place called Club Culture. And Club Culture was just, you know, it was at, like, a very challenging time period to try to have an all-ages venue like the cops were not very supportive of it you know yeah but like literally like every band you could think of played there you know like just to you know off the top of my head like you know descendants black flag like uh you know like dri gbh like wow you know, JFA, and that's like when we first met Corrosion of Conformity in the very beginning of Blast, like we would play there a lot with them, and mm-hmm. and just um, like so many bands came through there, like we played there with Subhumans and Scream, and that was great. Wow. But it was just an incredible venue that lasted a pretty long time for for what it was, and then the cops eventually just kind of ran him out of town, and you know, but he, he really, like, I don't know, he challenged him for a pretty long time, though, and kept the place open, and it was it was great. I mean, it was where just, you know, it basically brought tons of bands to Santa Cruz and kind of just made it a, a real scene, you know? Wow. So how long would you have gone under the name MAD? Was it, like, a year? Less than a year? God, I don't even... I know it was really, like, a fast, sort of short period of time kind of thing. Yeah. You did play shows as MAD though? We did. We played a couple. Like we we had the song Holocaust on the Maximum Rock and Roll compilation that right. yep. not so quiet on the Western Front. And then um you know, we played San Francisco and and like we had a pretty good I think it was kind of more over the course of like kind of one summer and then it kind of seemed to dissolve. I can't remember exactly what happened, but it just kind of, you know, and at the time I was kind of becoming disinterested in that scene, you know, like I felt like I was, you know, I'd seen too much when I was too young and had a lot of friends, you know, get into drugs and like end up homeless. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, I gotta, you know, get out of this for a minute. So I tried to turn into a preppy for like, a few months before I realized that that was just ridiculous. <laughs> and then, you know, and what was actually like, was funny is like in the beginning of blast, you know, they'd try to get me, I'd be like, I don't want to sing, you know, get my brother to sing. He looks just like me, <laughs> you know, which they actually tried for a minute. Right. And then all of a sudden, somehow I got a cassette tape, which is basically the power of expression without words. And, you know, I was planning to go, college you know down in san diego and i was you know 
getting ready to take off and it was just like all of a sudden I heard that, you know, and it's like when I heard like time to think for the first time, I was just like, what in the hell is this? And I was like, it just like it, it, it I was just like, I have to do this. Like this is stupid. Like if I don't do this, I have to do this. It's just, I'm staying, you know? And, and then it just kind of went from there. And like, we, we did some pretty like, you know, early recording right away, like the demos that you hear that's kind of like on that Southern Lord reissue and stuff. Right, yep. We did that right away. And that was like back in the the day when people traded tapes, you know, and people would get a hold of stuff and it would get way farther away than you ever thought it would. You know, and yeah. that's all of a sudden people were calling us up to play shows down South, you know, like, like the first time we ever played in Southern California was at the Oxnard community center i think it was and and it was uh it was just one of those typical kind of 80s hardcore rented halls and it was with youth brigade and it was really fun it went really good and then i think the next time we came down was when we played fender's ballroom and i think that was with the uk subs and bad religion and wow back when Golden Voice, like Gary Tobar used to have all those big, crazy shows and he'd like mix up the bands and have all the punk gang guys doing security and <laughs> definitely interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you record that demo. Was that one at Fane Productions? I know you ended up recording yeah. the, the full album that was released, I think, was also at Fane. Tell me about all that. I know it was, you know, around the time of the reissue, it's, there was a lot of talk about it being recorded three times, so that includes the demo. What about the other two recording sessions? Well, there was basically kind of two demos, I think. Actually, yeah, I think that the, the second one would be uh, Bill Matoyer, who recorded the anim, Animosity record for Corrosion and Conformity. Yeah. Um we recorded with him and that's actually, I mean, we did it really late at night. Like I think we did it after we played a show down there in Hollywood, you know, and just basically, yeah, stayed up all night. It was, uh, like he did a lot of stuff for metal blade records and, uh, yeah. And he was like, you know, kind of a well-known guy back then. And he recorded us and it was almost like, you know, like it, it like a lot of that earlier stuff was, was, slow, like a lot slower than what the power of expression ended up being. Like it was really slow and really heavy. Like the same tracks that and, were on the power of expression and, and then you sped them up later or you had other material that you didn't end up recording that was slower. No, this was the, the power of expression songs were slow. Yeah. Like just like, you know, like way slower than the record. And, um, and by the time we got the opportunity to do the record, it was like um, we got signed to this label, Green World, through this guy, Jack Kerrigan, that used to manage DI. And then, you know, the big concern back then was like getting a decent recording in a place like Santa Cruz where people just had no idea how to deal with something like that or that kind of music. And we really lucked out with that guy, Vince, that that recorded it at Fane. I mean, I think he did a great job. Like, yeah, it sounds amazing for back then. Like just that, that it happened to just turn out 
heavy, you know, it, yeah. it definitely sounds heavy where like, you know, it, it was just really hard to get someone, you know, cause they're dealing with these older guys that basically just recorded rock bands or soft rock bands or whatever. And then all of a sudden you've got this kind of thing, yeah. you know, if it's LA or somewhere like that, it's one thing, you know, San Francisco, there's, there's more of a variety of music, but back in Santa Cruz to find someone that, that could actually even semi-relate to what we were doing was not easy, you know? And Vince, was was he an older guy, but maybe a little more open-minded? It worked really good, and he just kind of, I think he did appreciate the music. He was like, wow, this is heavy, this is different, you know? Yeah. He just had a great attitude. He was he was good. And he, yeah, he got that uh, that sound, you know? Fane Productions was like a traditional old school recording studio, though. It was, I remember the setup being kind of trippy. I think it was just in this kind of warehouse kind of space. And, but somehow he got some, you know, some pretty incredible sounds out of there. So, Wishing Well, Green World, that's like two different labels. Well, the weird thing is, it's, it's basically just Green World, but basically. You know, we were friends with Uniform Choice, and, you know, they had this thing that was kind of a semi-label or something, but it was more just like a weird coalition with them that had happened for some reason. But we would never, like, you know, have anything really to do with Wishing Well outside of just, it was kind of like, I mean, I think it was, you know, just something to kind of bolster the thing, like, right. you know, because Green World was more of just a distributor, so. Gotcha. So the record comes out, did you tour the record? Yeah. Yeah, we toured. And uh, we did a good part of it with JFA, like all through the Midwest, like probably like Salt Lake, Denver, Lawrence, Kansas. I played the outhouse. And, and we went with them through all kinds of places until we eventually met up with uh, Corrosion and, and DRI. And then we did the rest of the stuff with them, and that was super fun. I mean, because we were all really good friends at that point, you know, like, you know, they were like sort of our like brother band, and you know, we we're friends with the DRI guys, and so that was like really fun. And the interesting thing about Blast is, I don't myself consider you guys like a crossover band, but you kind of play, you kind of dipped your toe in both worlds, like you had no problem hopping on Total Metal bills or playing with punk bands too or was it a problem? oh yeah for sure uh it was just i mean that that was a great era i think that we we didn't have quite that enough of that speed metal kind of influence to really like rope in those people but but people liked it you know i mean we played a lot of those kind of shows and and i mean you know because we definitely were when we created blast we just we didn't want to we were kind of sick of just generic punk with the generic drum style and, and it's like we just really wanted to you know like our drummer was super into like you know like Clive Burr Iron Maiden and like Bill Ward and wanting to incorporate like fills and like break up the monotony you know and, right. and we were just kind of like you know I guess we just kind of took like the notion of you know kind of doing what Black Flag was doing in terms of just like going out of your way to be, you know, musically different. And then we just kind of took that and, 
you know, took it into outer space eventually with like Manic Ride and all that stuff. Right. Kind of went too far. Like <laughs> we made songs that were too technical that we, you know, couldn't even play them. <laughs> so. Well, you mentioned Black Flag and definitely like there's some pretty intense drumming on this record, some wild time signatures. Obviously you got compared to Black Flag a lot at the time. And I, I mean, to my ear, you're totally different and way heavier. But there's an interesting quote I read from you where you said, like, the only opinion I care about are Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski's. They're the only people that have any right to to judge judge us on that. And, yeah. and uh, you know, they signed us to their label. So obviously, you know, it's not a problem for them. Is it something that really followed you guys and bothered you or are, are you okay with it? I, at the time it was kind of irritating, but it was just kind of like, you know, it, it was what it was. I mean, like I thought, you know, at first everyone was like, Oh, fucking blood flag and blood flag hates you and this and that. Like, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, we started noticing like Chuck Dukowski, like in the front row at our shows, just like there the whole time, just staring at us in this really intense way. And like, just, you know, like that started going to a lot of the shows. Right. And I knew Chuck. I was, you know, friends with him from when I was a kid, you know, going to all the Black Flag shows. And I remember just thinking, like, God, what, does Black Flag really hate us that much? Is he here to, like, kill us or something? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then he eventually, you know, was like, oh, you guys could do, you know, he was helping us with some, you know, some stuff with the power of expression when it kind of, Green World went under and it got kind of handed off to Enigma and he helped us, you know, got it back. And we were just talking about stuff and he was at one of those shows and he goes, well, God, you guys should do a record on SST. And we're just like, what? You know, like, <laughs> right, really? And, you know, and he was like, yeah. And, and then um, he, uh, you know, it was like, we got to run it by Greg. And, and uh, a little bit after that, we were playing with Gone and Bad Brains and Dr. No, like, in Oxnard, and uh, Greg Ginn was there, and at that time, William Duvall, who sings for Alice in Chains now, was, he had, you know, recently joined the band, and, right. and we'd been working on all those songs that would be the It's In My Blood record, and then we basically got signed by playing a Ghetto Blaster recording tape of it's in my blood and I don't even think there was any words to it it was just like this is what we sound like and he was like cool you know and, and that was that wow but it was just kind of funny you know that uh, you know like it was just this ghetto blaster recording and we listened <laughs> to it out in the car you know in the parking lot and he was like cool let's do this you know and, wow. and then the way that they got a hold of the power of expression is is basically just helping us get it back okay. from Enigma. I'm guessing it was out of print already by that point. Um, it was probably, yeah. Well, there was definitely still copies of it left, but it was, yeah, probably technically out of print. You know, and Chuck kind of just instructed me on how to go about getting, you know, that record back and getting it for like, he's like, do not say that you're associated with us because they're just going <laughs> to jack the price and sit on it, you know, just, and we ended up getting it, like buying it back from him from like, for like 300 bucks or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
So it was it was pretty cool. It was pretty uh like I remember we were talking, you know, the, to the main guy at Enigma and he's like, Well, I wish you'd just stay on Enigma and I'm like, Oh, we kinda just want to get it back and you know, and it, it was like Chuck definitely helped out a huge amount in getting that record out of their hands for sure. Right. When did Steve leave the band? Did he do the tour? He did the first tour and he was just kinda, you know, seemed like at the time getting in increasingly frustrated with things and just not really just didn't seem like where he wanted to be. And then, you know, there was just some animosity between people in the band and it just got to a point where it was kind of like, you know, you got to go. And he's like, I quit. And it was just kind of a mutual parting. Okay. But, um, and did you play? I think he was just starting to get into to other kinds of music and stuff, you know. And you played as a four-piece prior to to Kip joining the band. Um, basically, Steve showed me this letter that he'd gotten from Will, you know, and Neon Christ. Right. And um, it was basically, you know, a letter that. I guess he kind of, you know, sent out to like a bunch of bands like COC and Black Flag and, you know, Bad Brains, bands that he liked. And he was just like, hey, if you guys ever need a guitar player, like I will get there, you know. And we're like, okay, who's this guy, you know, like asking around, talking like corrosion of conformity. And they're like, oh, yeah, for sure. Get him, you know. So he was kind of a direct replacement for Steve. And he came out here, you know, and I remember it was kind of a, a difficult time you know for him it was kind of a culture shock to come out to santa cruz you know and he was basically living in a room made of sheets in my living room you know like pleasure point right. and uh just kind of immersed in this weird local california surf culture and just feeling kind of you know a little alienated in terms of just you know like i think it was like the first place that he ever moved out of his house in Atlanta too. So he just, you know, and I just admire the fact that he jumped on a plane and just came out to this strange environment and just was like, okay, I'll live no in the kidding. living room and we'll play and do all this. And then it eventually got to a point where uh, Mike decided that he just wanted one guitar player and um, felt like it wasn't really working out. So, you know, that's when when Will left and then we just decided to like gate our sound. Like he would play out of two different amps to kind of, you know, give it a fuller sound and put, put cabinets, you know, like a different sound on each side of the stage. Right. Which definitely worked pretty good, like to fill the void for sure. Tell me about the cover artist, Joel Loya. Was he somebody? Joel Loya. Yeah. Was he somebody you knew, a friend of the band? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was a, a good friend of mine. And uh, his younger brother, Josh, is, you know, he's turned into a pretty famous pro surfer from Santa Cruz. And they were just really good people. Joel was cool. And, he, you know, he's just like, I got some art, you know. And then we saw it. And we're just like, okay, that works, you know. Is the art like a real thing that he, like a real landscape that he drew? Yeah, he, he did not. Like, we didn't go to him and be like, hey, draw us a, a record cover. He's got, well, I got this thing. And we're like, cool. It's, that's cool, you know? 
but is it like the drawing itself? Is it is it an existing or was it an existing no. thing? It's just imaginary. No. So the writing process for the record, how are you for writing lyrics? Is it something you enjoy? Did it come naturally or was it difficult for you? Uh, I mean, I like it basically because I don't like playing an instrument or whatever. For me, it's just kind of like self brainwashing. Like I get it onto a tape and I just listen to it over and over and over and over until things just start to happen, you know, and I rewind parts and like when, you know, when lyrics start to happen, like, uh, you know, I'll get through one part, but then, you know, the next part, I'll just like listen to that, rewind it, listen to that, rewind it. And just, you know, basically just getting it so drilled into my head that it just starts to happen. And then just, yeah, usually just is kind of inspired by the musical parts themselves. You know, they just kind of dictate the situation. Was that the standard blast writing process? They give you the music, you write the lyrics? Yeah, definitely. Like I listen to the songs at, you know, practice. And I mean, basically like that, when I got that existing tape, you know, where I was just like, okay, I've got to do this. I just basically just was like, it got to a point where, you know, I'm just like, I got to do this. And I just started listening to it a lot. I'm just like, you know, the lyrics came fast. It was just kind of like, okay, this is happening. It just became like something that I wanted to do. And and it's like, you can't do the songs until you have the actual lyrics. Right. So it's like inspirational to just be like, I want to do these songs. I got to, you know, and we were like, you know, really productive in that way. Okay. Let's talk about some of the tracks. The record starts with Time to Think. Now, what's happening at the beginning of that song? Sounds like some studio chatter, maybe a church organ, some static, maybe, it sounds like maybe a blast track playing in the background. That's the M.A.D. Holocaust song. Oh, that's what it is. Okay. So basically, what happened is they were just doing a bunch of, they incorporated just a bunch of weird noise and distortion and you know like turning the dials of a radio station and then basically just calling a radio station and asking them to play holocaust and that's what you hear in the beginning it's the radio guy going you know we're not asleep and (laughs) then the song comes in and then it goes into the scratchy part of time to think okay great opening track by the way the album is very well sequenced, I would say. I'm guessing that's something you put a fair amount of thought into as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because it's just like the parts of the song, you know, it has to flow. It's got to start somewhere and end up somewhere. Yeah. And I think, I really think that that, you know, is an ultimate for a song for sure. And it's kind of just a, it's a hard one to just, even in, in general, like even nowadays, like, not start with that song live you know yeah i bet and then you go right into surf and destroy was that something you typically did when you when you played live yeah it was like just you know it was basically two songs that were kind of one song you know yeah was it recorded live that way do you know definitely yeah okay talk to me about skate culture and blast you know, you had a strong connection to Santa Cruz skateboards, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Mike was the uh, 
the head of silk screening at Santa Cruz State Wards, NHS. But we all worked there. You know, Steve worked there. I worked there. And um, it was just really cool. It's like, you know, we got to know a lot of the, the pro skaters, you know, that we're friends with. Like, it was, it was pretty funny because, like, when Mike first moved to Santa Cruz, I think it was like a two-bedroom apartment. And Rob Rothkopf, who's a super, you know, famous skater, and, and John Gibson, who was a pro skater that had moved there from Texas, and Dave and Mike and Steve all lived in this, like, two-bedroom apartment, you know, kind of up above where the, the old NHS used to be. And, and it was just kind of like we just got kind of integrated with that whole thing, you know? Yeah. And those guys were like, you know, Dave and I was more like a surfer that skated too. But like Dave and Mike and Bill and Steve, I mean, they were all like, super hardcore skaters and that's back when skateboarding was really connected to punk rock as well for sure yeah. i mean actually skateboarding is how those guys got into punk rock yeah you know because like the, the early skaters that they worship and you know reading the skateboard skateboarder magazine and you know when it turned into action now and stuff and just all the like skaters just got into punk like early on, you know, and those guys just kind of they're like, fuck yeah, let's, you know, go down south, go to the skate contest, go see like nine 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 or whatever, you right. know. Like, <laughs> the famous photo of Rob Roscop doing that method error over top of the band. Tell me about that photo shoot and what you remember of it. Where was it? How like how long did it take to get that photo? Uh, well, longer than it should have, because um, it was like basically we set up, it was like sort of a cul-de-sac that was kind of undeveloped, but was going to, you know, eventually what became a, a big neighborhood. But the roads were paved. There wasn't very many people that lived up there yet. So we just sat, like set up the equipment in the middle of the cul-de-sac. It wasn't plugged in or anything like that. We weren't like really playing. Right. And, um, you know, people were driving by <laughs> looking at us like, what the fuck are you guys doing, you know? And then, like, Rob decided to take a couple practice runs. So as he's, like, launching over us, like, it was, like, the first run, second run, like, right before we were even, like, done setting up, he breaks his board. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he didn't have a backup. So they had to go all the way back. Like, this was out in Aptos towards, you know, Salva, like, basically south Santa Cruz County. So they had to go all the way back to Santa Cruz in rush hour traffic. <laughs> so we're just standing there, you know, like to get another board, like it, it took like, like way longer than it should have. Like right. it seemed like we were standing around up there, like the people just giving us really weird looks for like an hour, you know, just in the middle 45 of nowhere. minutes before they, <laughs> yeah, before they finally came back. And then, you know, that's when it all started. And it was, it was pretty, pretty hectic. I mean, it was like, he was, you know, flying right over us, like right. very close. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, when I first saw that photo, I always assumed you were standing at the top of a, like a pool. Cause it's such a big air, but he's just hitting a launch. Or ramp. he was using a launch ramp. Yeah. 
but yeah. he was still like boosting really hard, you know, yeah. off that. Tactically, I mean, I guess it was kind of sketchy, you know, that he was coming so close to us. <laughs> we just kind of tried to stay out of his way, you know. Right. What about Thrasher magazine and like the skate rock comps and stuff? That must have given you a a boost in popularity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like like like, uh, like Bryce Knights was you know, a good friend of ours and Kevin Thatcher, the original publisher, you know, yeah. I mean, they were just great people. They just, they started that magazine in kind of a, you know, grassroots kind of way. And then it just kind of blew up and got bigger and bigger and eventually evolved into what it is now. But, but yeah, those were always great. You know, that was a good crossover skate magazine that incorporated music. You know? Yeah, for sure. Okay, some of the other tracks on here. EIB. What what is EIB? Uh, that was actually an MAD song that was called Everything is Beautiful. Uh-huh. So we just called it EIB. Yeah, that was just like that was kind of the one song that that kind of made the transition from uh MAD to to blast. Okay. Fucking with my head. Any thoughts on that track? Yeah, that was just kind of what it what it is. It just seemed like that that chorus, the fucking with my head, you know, it yeah. was so natural. It was hard to get beyond that. It was like this is really stupid, but <laughs> I mean, it just is perfect, you know. So. Yeah. Okay, the song "Our Explanation." I'm maybe reading too much into it, but it seemed like maybe it was directed towards the punk scene that maybe was not accepting of the the heavier direction am i reading too much into that no that's totally that was kind of like you know like if you can't deal with this you know you know we don't need to deal with you kind of thing it was just kind of like you know like i said we just kind of wanted to to go beyond where the stagnant scene was at that point you know yeah and at the same time we met up with Corrosion of Conformity, who was just another band that was doing the same thing and getting really creative in what they were doing, you know? So it was kind of just this, you know, like banding up with them and then like, you know, the Cro-Mags, Age of Coral came out right at the same time as uh, Power of Expression. You know, we played with them at Gilman and we made friends with them and I think we ended up scoring them some pot and stuff. And then we kind of interacted, you know, like kind of would cross paths occasionally on that first tour, you know, and hang out with them in New York and stuff. And then um, everywhere we went, you know, people were like playing the power of expression and playing the age of coral. And it was just kind of like this East coast, West coast thing, but they were the two like, like, they came out so close that it was just the new records that everyone had when we were cruising around and, and that was really cool, but it was just kind of like, you know, our, our explanation is just kind of like, we don't need an explanation for being different and doing something different. It's just our trip, you know? Right. Okay. The track, the future again, might be reading too much into the lyrics, but I, I catch a hint of maybe, you know, talking about people, maybe abusing the planet, which was something you and I were discussing before the, before we started recording with the wildfires and stuff down in in the neck of the woods is, am I off base about that lyrically? 
No, definitely. That's what it's all about for sure. And, and more so than that, it's just like classic Reagan era, like Cold War, fear of nuclear war kind of song. You know, it's like, fuck this. They can't do that. You know, like they control us with the stupid fear. And, yeah. You know, that kind of vibe. I love the leads on that song. Would are is that both Mike and Steve, or is it just Mike uh, with overdubs? Probably both, but I can't remember. But I think that they they used to trade off leads. Yeah, I wasn't sure if Steve was a lead player or if he just played rhythm. Well, yeah, like I said, they both kind of did. You know, if it was, you know, there was a lot of like trading leads and stuff like that, and then there was like, you know whoever's song it was like kind of it's like okay i'm gonna do a lead here or whatever you know gotcha okay the track something beyond you ended up re-recording that one for it's it's in my blood do you know why that why you made that decision i don't really because it that well basically what it was was that that was such a new song that it was just like okay let's record this you know we even like uh there's actually a a great, like, incredible version of Only Time Will Tell from that session, too, the, the Power of Expression recording. Oh, really? And um, that eventually became the opening track to It's My Blood. But something beyond thing, the reason that we redid it is because originally on the Power of Expression, it was only on cassette as a bonus track. Right. It wasn't on the vinyl. Okay, the track Break It Down to me is a particularly intense song. And when I hear it, I'm just picturing like a crazy circle pit. And it, I wanted to ask about in the liner, in the thank you list, you thank the Santa crew. Were those like, was that your crew of blast heads? Yeah, yeah, that was just basically all our friends, you know. Yeah. The 80s surf, skate, punk crew, Santa Cruz, you know. Any shows stand out to you as like a particularly insane show, crowd-wise, like a like a, with a big circle pit or something? Yeah, I mean, like you know, Fender's Ballroom and and like Beyond Broadway and the Mabuhe. I mean, you know, just all this back then. It, it didn't. It was kind of just wherever you played. It was completely. It was added. always like that. <laughs> yeah, it just. Uh, but Fender's. I mean, you can't really, in terms of like, probably the most insane, you know, and violent venue in the world would have to be Fender's Ballroom. I don't think there's a lot of people that would really disagree with that. It was just out of control, you know? And, like, the, the pitch would get so big, and it was, like, it was 1,100 capacity, but we played shows there. Like, we, you know, did a COC show there where it was 2,500 paid, you know? <laughs> and then we played with the Exploited, Oh wow! And Excel, and that was thirty five hundred paid, and this is in a you know eleven hundred capacity building, and right, and that's back when you know Gary Tobar would have all the different like rival gang people working together doing security. <laughs> so, uh, it was kind of a questionable concept, but <laughs> you know, I mean, I think he was trying to create some kind of unity or something, but it kind of didn't work. Didn't work, yeah. <laughs> Okay, but yeah, Fenders would have to be the ultimate. Like, uh, if, if if there was like the top of the heap in terms of sheer insanity, it had to be there. 
Okay, Time Waits for No One. That's the one that stood out for me as like probably a big leap musically from MAD as far as the drumming's pretty gnarly on that one and the time signatures are all over the place. Yeah, that that was one of those songs where we were like, you know, we were pushing it. It was like, that's, you know, when I heard that uh, original tape that I got before I was in the band or, you know, whatever, it was kind of like, I was like, wow, this is really getting creative and they're really pushing this, this quest towards originality. Like I thought, especially like that song was, you know, some of the parts in there were just like, we're not kids anymore. Like yeah. these, these guys are turning into real songwriters, you know? Yeah. There's some serious playing for sure on that. Well, on the whole album, but that one stood out to me as being very technical, you know, technically advanced for sure. Okay. The track, I don't need it. It's, it sounds like you're having some beers in the studio at the end of that one. Do you remember that? Yeah. Cause it was like, like, uh, yeah, we were drinking Rainier Ale, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that was just sort of a sarcastic thing, because it was like a, a, a great song that we wanted to do, but it was like, you know, when the Straight Edge thing first came out, we were kind of like, you know, tried it out for a minute. We're like, nah, we don't want to be Straight Edge. You can't drink and stuff right. and smoke pot, you know? So, so then the song was still good, but, I mean, Steve basically wrote those lyrics, so, um, I mean, I think he kind of was sober at the time. But. Okay. Uh, the song It's Alive has kind of a cool call and response thing. I can just picture a crowd shouting that back at you. Yeah, that that definitely was good for that. But uh, surprisingly, like, that song was one of the first to kind of get... Uh, you know, as the new stuff, it's in my blood kind of stuff started to creep in. That was one of the, you know, the first songs that got kind of filtered out early on, you know. But I always liked that, you know, some of the parts in that. It was just kind of a, it was a song, too, that wasn't like there wasn't as much thought, you know, put into it in terms, you know, lyrically or just whatever. And it kind of, it was like I said, it was kind of one of the first ones to kind of get filtered out when the new stuff started Okay, look into myself, kind of those classic, you know, blast introspective lyrics. Yeah, and it's like you're at that age, you know, you're coming out of your teens, you're in your early 20s, and you're like, what the fuck, you know, do I want to do kind of thing, you know? And then we end with the song Nightmare, which I hear like almost a St. Vitus Sabbath vibe. You mentioned that the band, you know, was much slower at one point. Were Were you into those bands? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. We actually played with Saint Vitus back in the the early days, and they were just Saint Vitus is is awesome. Yeah, and Sabbath, obviously, you know. Yeah, totally. Do you have a favorite track on the record? God, on that record, I, I would have to say "Time to Think," and um, you know, probably uh, our explanation and. And something beyond. When you did the the Southern Lord reissue, how long had it been since you'd heard those other recordings? Had it been like since you recorded it, or was it something you already had, like copies of? Uh well, I like I didn't like those 
first recordings, you know, like I hated it. I was just like, oh my God, I don't want to be in this band. I can't sing, you know, and this guy's like, no, you have to do it. And I'm like, fuck, really? You guys are like masochist, <laughs> you know, it sounds like shit. But, but then, um, you know, by the time the power of expression came around, but yeah, so I, I, I hadn't heard that stuff like since, yeah, since it was around before the record probably. Yeah. And do you still think that? <laughs> I mean, kind of, you know, it just seems really, I like the slowness. I like the really crushing, slower heaviness of it. But I, I just think that, you know, the, the vocals weren't really quite there yet. It was just a little too like stiff or something. Okay. Take me up to speed on what you're doing now. You mentioned Dusted Angel. So that band's still active? Yeah, Dusted Angel is kind of just this, this weird kind of sleeping giant kind of band that's just kind of, uh, you know, we've been around like together for, God, I don't even know how long now, like way over 10 years. Yeah. And um, that was a band that was basically started by Bill Torgerson from Blast. And then um, this guy, Dog, who was an old friend of ours who... Uh, who was the guy that actually made the flyer and with the Abraxas lady on it, which we took and made the, the blast lady. Right. And, um, you know, a bunch of old friends and, and those guys were doing this stuff. And then somehow I got a hold of a CD of that too. Like a friend, Scotty gave it to me, was in the band and, and, um, I just listened to it and I was like, wow, this is great. You know, cause they had just gotten to a point where they was like, Hey, why would Clifford sing for this? And the same guy that basically got blast together, you know, in terms of people, you know, Keith Meeks, like he was like, yeah, dog was over here the other day. And he was like, why, you know, wouldn't Clifford sing or would, you know, we should try to get someone like that. And I was like, shoot, I'll do it. You know? Yeah. And then I heard it and, uh, I mean, I just think I, I really, really, really like being in that band. You know, it's just great. And it's like when we play live, you know, people come out because it's kind of like they never know when we're going to play again. So they're, they're always there to check it out. And, but it's just like we haven't really ever done a real recording, you know, that, that kind of lives up to what, what we are live. Yeah. And that's kind of our goal now is we're actually trying to focus on like, let's get a real recording out, you know, even if it's just digital, whatever. Right. It's like, we're not a very, you know, productive band in terms of, you know, like it's, a, it's unlikely that a label would sign us, but at the same time, we should still have stuff that people can listen to, you know? For sure. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you jammed, I think you said this week or last night. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Dusted Angel practices on Thursdays and then I'm in a new band called seized up yeah tell me about that i think your record is either out is it out today i it comes out october 9th but there's a there's a song called manic decompression that's like the first song on the record that they made promotional flexies to and if you've heard anything you've you've heard that because that's like the teaser song that you go to the pirates press like uh you know website or youtube it's like it comes up and it's it's that's the song that that is being played a lot right now. But then the actual full length record comes out on October 9th. Okay. 
yeah, the track's great. It sounds, you know, probably the closest you've done to Blast for sure since since you were in the band. Yeah, because right after Blast, I, I joined a band called Space Boy that was really uh, just um, just crazy, crazy stuff. Like just um, two really extremely different guitar players and really jazzy bassist and drummer, but you know, just like, um, I mean, we put out three records, like uh, one on Frenetic, one on Howling Bowl, Japan, and one on Southern Lord. Okay. And um, a couple of seven inches, but it's like, um, that was the band that I, I, I went to after Blast, and it was kind of like, you know, I was kind of looking to do something different, and then I was like, wow, this is insanely different, you know? So we kind of did a lot with that, and then um, that kind of turned into a band called Gargantula, and then, then I did a Dusted Angel, and now, you know, then we did the Blast stuff in 2014 with Joey and Nick and stuff. Right. And then um, Seized Up is just, you know, we've been around probably, you know, about a year, basically. Tell me how that band came together. Well, that was really interesting. Like, the guys in seized up had all been together in a band called fast asleep. And I was getting like more and more into fast asleep. Like every time I'd go see him, I just be like, God, this band is incredible. You know, almost to the point where I, you know, I was like kind of joking around. If you guys ever get a sore throat or <laughs> you know, like I want to sing or whatever. And then, you know, at one of their last shows, it was like, they're just like, Hey, you know, we need to talk to you like after the show, like hang out, right. you know? And I'm just like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, the show ended and they're like, this is what's going on. Fast asleep is breaking up because their drummer was moving to New York. So they're like, okay, we're done. We're going to form a new band and we want you to sing. We're going to find a different drummer. And the drummer that they got, Andrew, uh, Andy Grinelli was, um, the original fast asleep drummer. And he also was in the Nerve Agents, and he's currently in the Distillers. And Chuck is in Good Riddance and was also in Fast Asleep. And then Danny Buzzard was in Fast Asleep with Chuck. So it was just kind of like those guys were already tied in, and like they just kind of got their original drummer back, who's just a great drummer and like the perfect person to do it. And it just kind of gelled. So... um Okay. We just started making songs and recorded them. And... Can't wait to hear, to hear it. I'm assuming you'd be playing shows if it wasn't for COVID. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. We've only got to play three shows. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it'll be interesting. It's kind of, I mean, I think it's going to be painful for us to, uh, you know, not be able to play live. But I think it's also going to be painful to the people that listen to it and can't see it live. Cause it's the kind of music when, when you hear the record, you're like, Oh, this, you know, it's the kind of thing that you want to see live. It's going to be kind of just weird for it to come out and not be able to, you know, yeah, have that crowd interaction. That so natural to that kind of music, you know? Well, hopefully soon and it'll be worth the wait ever. And everyone will know all the songs by the time you eventually play. For sure, so. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot to do. Like, yeah. <laughs> except sit around and 
listen to records. Yeah. What about Blast? Is is Blast done? Blast? No, Blast is never done. You know, Blast is just kind of dormant. Blast. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of you know. It could be there one second and gone the next, but right. it's it's definitely never gone. It's it's always kind of like it's going to rear its head in some form. And and right now, I mean, I know there's there's plenty of new songs and stuff wow. like that, and there's definitely a you know the opportunity to to do a new record. And and I think it's you know starting to lean in that direction and it's definitely hopefully probably going to happen wow that's great news and the songs are definitely very classic blast sounding on this these new ones too like you know kind of leaning more towards the power of expression kind of era but the new stuff that we did we did a we did a split seven inch with i hate god right um i don't know if you heard that stuff that was I did, that was yeah. a song called cut cut your teeth yeah yeah, and great. we did a video for that song. And then we also did the stuff with Dave Grohl and, and Chuck Dukowski playing drums and bass. And that's uh, a seven inch called uh, For Those Who've Graced the Fire. Yeah. That was uh, on Rise Records. You know, the blast thing is, is it, it should happen. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just getting everyone together at this age, you know. For sure. Right on. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for some more blast stuff and keep our eyes peeled for the seized up and hopefully a dusted angel record at some point. Yeah, that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah. Right on Clifford. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Awesome to hear from Clifford and to do a deep dive on the record here. It sounds like it uh, was a great experience pulling this record together too. And they played some wild shows right oh yeah yeah jfa they toured yeah. with nice yeah. coc yeah like their first show i think he says was with youth brigade and then their second show was with uk subs and bad religion crazy yeah. that's amazing man uh one thing he mentioned that i checked out was this band the humans they're cool from santa cruz check them out can I uh, can I give you a couple of, rev or at least one review I think I've got here. Can I give you a review of this record? Yeah, man. So this is out of the, the amazing book by Mike Gitter, The Triple X Fanzine, 1983 to 1988, Hardcore and Punk in the 80s. And the, uh, the Blast records, they're, they're really, um, they receive some good coverage and uh, there's actually a blast interview in this book and some flyers and stuff um here's the here's the review of the blast the power of expression the name says it all blast know how to kick you where it counts tear the things off and dive in for more too many adjectives for this piece of intensity just too amazing exclamation point and uh uh, the record made um, a top 10 of that year in uh, this fanzine. I also thought it's interesting in the interview with Blast that the uh, that the book reproduces 
the there there is a an interview with Clifford in it as well, mm-hmm. and it starts. Um, it, it kind of characterizes their music as a personal catastrophic sound. And I think that's yeah. pretty fitting, right? For what blast sounds like. Yeah, man. Um, the other book that I, I found a piece on blast in was that book cross over the edge when hardcore punk and metal collide. Yeah. That's uh, a book by Alexandros Anisiadis. There's uh there's an interview in there as well, but there's a, a bunch of lists at the back, you know, top twenties, top 20 right. most influential records, um, the top 50 crossover records. And again, you, you speak with Clifford about how blast is not really a crossover band, but it is, it is included in this book. The blast record power of expression is number seven on the 20 records that appeal all around. And I think, what they're getting at there is the fact, um, and it's mentioned in the section on Blast in this book, about how they had like not just crossover appeal, I guess, but you know there were metal fans, hardcore fans, um, and then as you mentioned in the interview with Clifford, like you know Sabbath fans that were just into the intensity that they brought every single time. And a lot of people were really, really blown away by them live. Just the intensity. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah. Well, you look at videos of them live on like YouTube and stuff from back then, you know, Mike is just headbanging the entire time. Clifford is like prowling the stage, just like a caged animal and like punching the air and stuff. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's funny. Like it didn't really hit me until this past week when I was listening to the record and the connection with wishing well records, but there's a lot of bands that were influenced by blast in that, that hardcore straight edge, like victory records, revelation records, like a ton of bands. And even if you look at, uh, what they look like in those shows back then, it's very, very much kind of the embryonic phases of that branch of hardcore. But that wasn't, that was part of what Blast was, but not entirely. Blast was was more diverse, you know, and you hear it in the record. Yeah. Let's talk about the tunes, man. History Lesson, Part 2. So, Ryan, uh, before we get into these tracks, I'll just say, so we don't have to say it every for every song, all lyrics are written by Clifford Dinsmore, uh, all music by Stevenson, except Time to Think, Surf and Destroy by Stevenson Nider, and Our Explanation, which is credited solely to Mike Nider. Yeah, I should also mention, too, that the back of the jacket, at least on the CD or whatever, and everywhere else I, I found it, the tracks are not in the order that they appear on the actual recording in that order. Oh. Yeah, it 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 li- we'll get to it, but it lists something beyond as the final track, but it's it's track 6 because that like that's where it is. It's in the middle of the record, I guess. Um right. And it's track 6 on the CD because time to think and surf and destroy your track 1. Yeah. Okay, well on the LP Time to Think is listed as a as its own track. 
So the first track is Time to Think. Like Clifford points out in the interview, uh, it starts with the MAD Holocaust song being played on a radio station with some kind of menacing guitar chugging over top. Then it goes into this totally intense riff just all over the place. One of those songs with enough great riffs to write half a dozen songs. Yeah. There's so many time changes all over this record and, and within each song. And you know what? Like blast really like rock. They really swing. They've got a real intense groove that builds a lot of tension. And this track really kicks off the album that way. Yeah, I like the way the two guitarists play together, too. Yeah. Killer opening track. Okay, track two, they go right into it, Surf and Destroy. I love the lyrics to this song. Let the world end, but not before I go out and shred. Yes. (laughs) I like those dive bombs that Blast always does, like when they hit an E chord, an open E chord. Yeah. You just know they're like bending the necks on those Dan Armstrongs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to get that sound. Or they're just hitting the strings so so hard. hard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, track three, Fucking With My Head. Dave opens the song with like a cool bass part. Love the finger picking. Very Chuck Dukowski. Yeah, great intro. Yeah, this is one that would have got some Black Flag comparisons for sure. I'm not saying it's a ripoff, but it's kind of reminiscent at times of the My War track can't decide like the melody of it oh yeah the middle section though like just killer uh the palm muting i love the solo on this one's just a scorcher track four eib which uh as clifford mentions in the interview is uh short for everything is beautiful a leftover track from mad which is probably why it's 32 seconds long, a little bit different from the rest of the tracks. And track five, Our Explanation. Uh, This song is just so intense. The fact that Mike was able to write a song like this uh, with so many great riffs and parts must have made them feel pretty assured when Steve quit the band. Oh, yeah. That they could, you know, go on without him. Total riff fest, and the leads are just killer. Clifford's vocals, too, are just insane. Yeah, super intense breakdown in the middle, too, that just adds to the urgency of the song. Like, it's a, it's mid-tempo, but you, if you were in the crowd, you would just be raging with this song. And oh yeah, there's a killer pick, <laughs> there's a killer pick slide in it, too, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, you know what, man? Like, those parts... Uh, you know, like Anthrax, for example, who came up in the hardcore scene too, or were influenced by it at, at the very least, you know, they had always those slow parts and on the records, it, those are listed as the mosh part, the yeah. slow part. Yeah. That's where you mosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Track six, the future. I of course love the pick slides at the start of this one. Uh, again, the, this is just something I noticed. The riff reminds me a little bit of that Minor Threat song, In My Eyes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, so many different parts. Most bands would kill for all of these riffs, you know? They would take any number of these riffs and just base an entire song around it. Love the solo section, sounds where it sounds like they're trading leads. And then, as you mentioned, Ryan, on the CD and cassette version 
the Wishing Well cassette and the SST cassette and CD uh, is the track Something Beyond, which they later re-recorded for It's In My Blood. Uh, love the reverb on Clifford's vocals on this version. It's just a killer track. It's just as good as the version on It's In My Blood, in my opinion. Yeah, that ascending chord sequence, again, like, it's like they they wrote riffs specifically in mind to, like, just ramp up the crowd. Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't stand still when you hear this stuff. Yeah, that's why Something Beyond would be at the end, because they probably took the same artwork and just tacked it on at the end. Ah, uh, yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, and then on the LP, we're flipping it over to Break It Down. I just wrote Riftastic. Great <laughs> opener for the B-side. <laughs> yeah, love this one. Break It Down is a good song. Just as scorching as Time to Think, for sure. Track two, Time Waits for No One. The slower breakdown in the middle part is so great. Let yourself go. Yeah, now my dreams are shattered. Bill's drumming, his fills, uh, his meter, and the way he does that kind of lurching sound that Black Flag did uh, is just so perfect for the band and pretty integral to their sound, too. Uh, it's got the... Oh, yeah. The, they swing. Yeah. They swing, man. They actually swing. Yeah. Yep. It's got the nice, doomy Sabbath outro where you can hear the clock ticking. And Clifford's going, such a tragic story. Don't let it happen to you. Track three, side two, I Don't Need To. This is Steve's Straight Edge song that Clifford talks about oh, yeah. in the interview. Yeah. Like this this is one of those tracks that could be on the Screaming for Change record by Uniform Choice, 100%. But it's it sounds like blast. You could take this, you could lift this riff though and put Pat Dubar on it and it could be a Uniform Choice song. Track four, It's Alive. Cool structure with all the stops and starts where he's going, is it alive? Yes, it's alive. And then that weird drum and bass pattern that they do after the call and response thing. Like the timing is just, you know, their time signatures are all screwy on this record in a good way. Yeah, they would have been insanely tight. They were they were practiced up. If you're going to play this in the studio, you can't play this shit to a click track. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Okay, track five. Look Into Myself, uh, also re-recorded for the It's In My Blood album. I like that version a bit better. Uh, I sh I'm sure I said it when we did that episode, but this opening lick really reminds me of DOA's America the Beautiful. Hmm. Again, not saying it's a rip-off, I'm just just pointing that out. And it ends with a total gin chord, like, you know, I'm not a machine style. Yeah, yep. dissonant, yep. a seventh chord. Yeah. And then the final track, Nightmare, similar to how It's In My Blood ends with the title track, which is also a total epic. This one is a six minute long song. It's got this extended creepy crawl intro with bass and Clifford whispering over top, like sounds like he's whispering some warnings or something. You can hear some faint screaming in the background, the kick drum part and the like with the bass and the sound effects and then how it kind of slams back into the track. Super cool song. On the Southern Lord reissue, the track sessions version of this is super doomy and really awesome. I have a couple reviews too, Ryan. This is from that Ink Disease zine by a guy named Brian. He said, this is SST's reissue of Blast's first LP. In the past, we've discussed Blast's similarity to Black Flag. 
On hearing this, SSD control also comes to mind. But never mind that, there's nothing sacred about either of those two bands. Both forfeited all hope for the afterlife, their later LPs being a testament to that. And what about Blast? Let me tell you, intensity like this is bound to grab you by the antlers. These guys change tempo more times in one song than most bands do in an entire set. Hardcore has its virtues, and two cheers to these dudes for reminding me of that. Now I've got to clean up my room. All this slamming has made it a complete mess. <laughs> and then, nice. And then here's just a little blurb off the Wishing Well Green World hype sticker that came on the LP cover. Aggressive guitars, pounding rhythms, and blatant vocals from this powerful hardcore band. Yowza. Here's, uh, here's what the Spaceman said about Blast, this record. He said, Blast lets loose a barrage of the pent-up frustrations of the young, framed by the twin ethos of surf and destroy and something beyond. This record is a furnace of incendiary rock power. Contains 12 bursts of blast. Nice. Here's one I found, Ryan, from the Southern Lord reissue. This is from the Sleeping Shaman webzine. Ollie Steigel is the... The reviewer, a very tasty pissed off slab of typical 80s American hardcore. The Black Flag influence is immediately apparent. In fact, Blast almost sound like an homage to the punk legends. Mike Niter's guitar operates within the same fuzzed out biting range that Greg Ginn made his signature and Clifford's vocals have more than a touch of Des Kadena to them as opposed to Henry Rollins. Musically, this displays the ragged, stop-start, twisting metallic punk that was typical of the era, with shifting tempos and offbeat dynamics. As with many of the hardcore bands of the time, speed wasn't the single motivating factor, as the band experiment with slower, heavier tempos and breakdowns, as well as some downright odd twists, in amidst their frantic thrashing. And then, here's Mark Deming on All Music. Playing a similar fusion of amped-up punk and twisted metal, but with fewer stylistic affectations, vocalist Clifford Dinsmore sounds heavier and more wiry than Henry Rollins, but he just about matches him for sheer rage, and guitarist Mike Niter lays out harsh, dirty leads that veer into feedback and dissonance as he weaves upside-down metal riffage through a wall of punk downstrokes. They had the metal side of the formula worked out better than Greg Ginn did, despite plenty of trying. And then just one other thing I wanted to mention, Ryan, that I found while I was looking around. There's a German band uh, called The Power of Expression. That's the name of the band. And their first LP, they covered this album in its entirety. Whoa. And you mentioned Lost and Found Records. That's the label it's on. Came out... Yeah, not surprised. Yeah, came out in 1994. And they followed it up with a record called ex-territorial which had a different sound more like a biohazard thing or something like that but you can watch a video they did for their version of the blast song break it down so hmm. that was interesting yeah I, I had not come across that interesting is it worth checking out uh it's interesting for sure i mean like <laughs> they named their band after this record and covered this record <laughs> in its entirety for their first release. So yeah, clearly they were super fans, you know, very focused. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Should we check out the artwork a bit? Yeah. So you mentioned the front cover in the interview with Clifford. Hey, yeah. 
and it's it's not a real place. It looks like like a, a like a Roman Colosseum type of ruins for sure, but almost like post-apocalyptic, and almost I don't know. It almost looks like nuclear clouds or something, and then some dude leaning up against a doorway who just can't take it anymore, it looks like. Yeah, I thought those were smokestacks, but now that it, you mention it, yeah, they're ruins for sure. Yeah. We have some great photos on the back. Oh, yeah. Very young-looking blast, the five-piece lineup. Yeah, they're definitely, like, just bringing it, the intensity on the stage. Um, I can only pick out one T-shirt, though. Like, it looks like a Black Sabbath t-shirt. I wish I could figure out what the other ones are. Oh, maybe the other one's a COC shirt. Why should we? Oh, you're, the CD version must have the live photos that are on the insert. Yeah. Okay, well, what's on the back? Oh, is, are you talking about their the picture where they're sitting down with all the, like, the hoodies on? Yeah, they're down by the beach and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's a good shot. I was talking about the inside. Sorry. Yeah. Yep, some pretty intense live photos there. Some nice ones of each band member. A great thank you list. Yeah, except for the very last piece. But why don't you pick out some good thank yous for the people? Uh, let's see, seven seconds in positive force. Brian Walsby, Pat Dubar, wishing well, of course. Yeah. Jello Biafra. Stalag 13. COC, Tim Yohannan. Yeah. You mentioned a, a bad one. Yeah, at the very end it says, complete hatred to the fucking maggot that stole Dave's bass from the Balboa Theater in L.A., burn in hell, you son of a bitch. <laughs> That's the bad one at the bottom, yeah. right? We've got some lyrics on the other side. Yeah. No dead wax. Well, I only have the CD, unfortunately. Yeah. There might be. I could, I wasn't able to find it. The Southern Lord reissue is a cool kind of in interpretation of this cover, which is, which is really cool. Was Dave Grohl involved in that one as well, or just the uh, just the blood one? I think just the blood one. Yeah, yeah, it seemed to be that way too, but uh, could be wrong. Yeah, I did finally find you gifted me the blood CD way back when, and I I don't know, notwithstanding my unimpeachable filing method, um, I couldn't find it for the last episode, but I found it. I found it for this one. Nice ballot result. Yeah, man. Ballot result. So I could pick a few, but um, I, I would probably lean toward, if it's permissible in our Mojack bylaws, I would actually go with the CD version and do Time to Think and Surf and Destroy combo. Hmm. I like Time to Think. I like our explanation. And I like Break It Down. And I like Nightmare. No way. The last track, yeah. Nightmare. Interesting. Yeah. You pick, man. Well, uh, it is permissible, so we'll do uh, Time to Think, Surf, and Destroy. Track one on the CD. That's right. Nice one. That's right. All right. Hey, thanks to Clifford Dinsmore for being on the show. And thanks to Dave Cooper, too, for helping me set up an interview with Clifford. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, one of our faves... We're going to visit our past lives with Saccharin Trust, SST149. Can't wait to get into Saccharin Trust again. Yeah, we've got a special guest too. Devin Sarno is going to be on the show. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. 
We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.